the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Welcome to JJ, the JJ Dillon Podcast. I am your co-host, JP John Paz, and with me, as always, is the star of the show, two-time Hall of Famer, the leader of the Four Horsemen, the second greatest manager of all time, a former WWF and WCW executive, James J. Dillon. JJ, how are you doing this evening? John, I'm doing great, and uh, are you getting into the swing for the holiday season? Oh, yes, yes. How about you? You getting ready uh, for this crazy Christmas? Yeah, I mean, uh, I always feel that Christmas is largely for the kids, and uh, and I, I do have children and grandchildren and some great-grandchildren, so uh, for me, Christmas is, uh, and the holidays in general are about them, but, uh, and it, you know, it's it's just, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of cold weather, but uh, it's also really a, a nice, joyous time of the year, and uh, as we get ready to welcome in a new year, so... Um, it's a good time. Good time for me. Yeah, absolutely. And this week on the show, we'll be Ask JJ Anything, where we'll be taking some questions that we've got either from Twitter or from email or from wherever we've gotten them from. Even uh, got a phone call from uh, an old friend of yours and got a question they wanted to send in. So, you know, we got a bunch of random, just different questions from all over. I don't know if we'll get to all of them quite on this episode, but we'll get it to as many as we can. Are you ready? I am ready, and we've had no preliminary discussion, no nope. uh, no advance notice, which uh, I like it that way. Just whatever it is, uh, put the question out there, and I'll do my best to answer. Now, the old, I'm not sure if you remember him, hopefully you will, the old Jim Crockett promotion photographer, Eddie Cheslock, who's uh, an old friend of yours. He sent from, in. Uh, from Richmond. Yes, exactly. Yep. I, I remember him well. He's a good friend. He wanted to know what are your top three four horsemen and why, meaning group wise. So he his pick was Arn, Rick, obviously Tully and Oli. That's his favorite. His second favorite was Rick Arn Tully and Luger. Then his third favorite was Rick Arn Tully and Barry. So he's saying basically, what are your top three groups that you had of the four horsemen? Well, the original group which he listed first would would be my choice as well, and um, the next would be actually. Uh, the, the the group with uh, with Barry and um, beyond that I I, uh, I I don't start numbering him down I mean the group with Oli if it hadn't have been for him um, 
you know, maybe the, the horseman, uh, the thing would never have gotten off the ground, never going anywhere. So that that is uh, that is important. And even though Ole is basically retired and, and out of the uh, limelight, uh, he had a fantastic career. Uh, when I broke in with Jim Crockett Promotions uh, back in the early 70s, um, uh, Ole uh, was was basically a, a main event performer, and he and Gene were the were which because the Carolinas was predominantly a tag team territory, and he and Gene were one of the uh, one of the the top tier teams along with Rip Hulk and Sweet Hanson, and um, so I, I got to be be around those guys uh, as I broke in on the road, and and again the, I, I started, and this is now, but you have to remember this is before the internet, before. Uh, you know, cable television. And so being from Trenton, New Jersey, you know, my uh, understanding other than just, you know, the the newsletters weren't as uh, prevalent back then. And you got the newsletter, which would kind of tell you what was going on uh, through correspondence, you know, mentioning, you know, whatever the territory is, whether it was Detroit or uh, Amarillo and in California, that way I was my way of knowing, you know, who was, who was appearing where and, uh, you know, what the, what the hot uh, feud was in that particular territory. So it was, it, it was, uh, it was a different time. That's for sure. Now he also mentioned he loved the Luger group as well. And I know obviously, uh, Lex is near and dear to your heart as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Lex, uh, was, the one guy that came along who uh, the other horsemen were all people who had had uh, length, lengthy careers and Lex uh, was in Florida. He was uh, a football player, bodybuilder and uh, kind of got sideways in Florida with uh, Bruiser Brody. And uh, I remember Eddie Graham called Jim Crockett uh, back then and, and the situation in Florida was uh, intolerable because it was, I guess, a cage match from from what I remember with uh, uh, with Luger and uh, uh, you know it it, it just <laughs> it got out of hand and uh, Luger climbed uh, on his own over the top rope and over the over the top of the cage went down went back to the dressing room picked up his gear and left the building and so it's uh, <laughs> you know Luger's Luger's Right from the get-go, in the very beginning, has been somewhat of a, a controversial figure, but he—we uh, did well with him as part of the Horseman. I got a question here from Billy M via email. He said, "What was it like to be under the learning tree of Eddie Graham in Florida?" Well, uh, you know, in in the industry, uh, you know, we would we would hear people talk about. Uh, who the great leaders were, and and I, I kind of figured that, and Eddie Graham was the was kind of like the the guru. He was the the, the top guy who, who, and, and at that time I remember Dr. Jerry Graham and Eddie Graham, the Graham brothers, being in the New York territory. In fact, I've got a copy of the original uh, Wrestling Review magazine that uh, came out and. The fall of I want to say 19, yeah, I'm looking at the date 1959, and the cover was Dr. Jerry Graham and Eddie Graham, 
and Jerry was the flamboyant one, always with a cigar, and and he was did the one that did all the talking, and Eddie stood there, you know, very stoic, and he never he never even said anything, and of course, later on I found out once I was on the inside of the business, you know how how respected Eddie was, and that he uh, was and is one of the most brilliant people ever behind the scenes. He was, he was a great performer in the ring. He was, uh, I wrestled Eddie many, many times, which was a great privilege and honor to, to have been in the ring with him. But he was, uh, using some inside terms. He was, uh, uh, salty. <laughs> hmm. Uh, he was snug and, if if he reached up, you know, if you had him in a hammerlock or, or in an arm bar or something, and he reached up and got a handful of your hair, the back of your head, um, and was going to pull you down, if you were smart, you knew what the inevitable was going to be and didn't offer a lot of resistance, or um, you'd be eventually on the ground anyway, and Eddie'd be standing there with a handful of your hair. <laughs> hmm. so, wow. Yeah, he was uh, he was very physical. He very physical. He he didn't he wasn't dangerous in that he didn't uh, you know deliberately hurt people. But he just uh, he was he was tough. And he he went all the way back to the early days with uh, Dory Funk Senior in in Amarillo. He was a a huge card. Eddie was in, in Amarillo. I think he wrestled in the name of Rip Rogers back in the day. And then. Uh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie became a, a, a not only a student of the business, but regarded as a professor emeritus by anybody that was in the business that was ever around him. So I really look forward to uh, my, you know, my journey. And and back in those days, you would go from territory to territory. And Eddie settled in Florida, and I, I, I you know, finally got to. Uh, uh, to be there and to be around him, and when you when you talk about being under the Eddie Graham learning tree, that that's what it was. He was just somebody that, um, and I've told the story in in Tampa. Um, the dressing room was up on the second floor, and there was a right at the, as you came up the stairs was a door into the dressing room that the that the heels came out of, and you had to go around and along that railing to a. a another door farther down that the baby faces would go in. However, there was a door on the inside where the one could access the other from the inside without the, the people in the arena seeing it. And I can think of more than one occasion where uh, Eddie wasn't actually in the match, but I remember there was a, a tag match of, uh, you know, four seasoned, seasoned guys that was going to be, uh, an outstanding match just with them putting their heads together to see what, what they would come up with. And there were four, these four guys that were, were in it, uh, sitting around, you know, with four folding chairs in, in, in like a, uh, a circle so that they could all make eye contact with each other and communicate. And as I look back at the scene, Eddie Graham was sitting on a separate chair, maybe two, three feet, behind that group but where he could you know hear what they were saying and and they would go over and 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 throw suggestions and 
um, and list ideas and uh, and just when they thought that they really had a, a, a great uh, a plan for that match that night, Eddie would just slide his chair a little closer and he he would say, uh, "Boy, what you you know?" He always was was would stay start by saying that you know what they had put together at that point was going to be great, you know, with no input from him. However, he, he, something came to mind and he said, think about this. And he, he would throw out one little, one little thing and that would, uh, would generate a, a another conversation to, to, to basically relook at what they had already done. And there was, he, he didn't want to, um, uh, dampen the enthusiasm and, and the creative ideas of the four guys that really put their heads together and came up with something that was really good, but with Eddie's input and changing a few things, it be, it went from being really very good to being excellent. And that's what Eddie was so, so good at. And he didn't, he, he basically took the, the ingredients of, of what they had come up with and then added some things to, uh, to make it even better. And that was the essence of, of Eddie Graham. Such a brilliant mind in the wrestling business. Billy also wrote by email, what was your favorite territory to work and why? Well, Florida, Florida was, has to be right up at or near the top of my list uh, because of the fact that, uh, that I was, had a chance to, to be there under the Eddie Graham learning tree. And, and Eddie was, uh, um, was actively wrestling at, at that time too. And I remember, uh, on Friday nights, uh, Mike Graham was, was kind of, uh, you know, growing, uh, creative on the creative side and on Friday nights, they ran two towns. One was in, in it was in Tallahassee in the in the northern part of the state of Florida by the Panhandle, and Fort Lauderdale was, you know, down in close to Miami. Well, Mike Graham, I think, had a a, a sweetheart down there, so that every Friday, he was on the Fort Lauderdale card, and that left me basically going to Tallahassee every week, which was fine with me. And, you know, driving distance were about, about the same. And, um, you know, Fort Lauderdale probably had the, the potential of maybe drawing a little bit better where you can make a little more money. But um, because I was going to Tallahassee every week and Eddie kind of uh, knew that Eddie, Eddie got a hold of me and said that he wanted me to basically uh, run that town. And he said, I think, you know, you've earned the right to, to push yourself and to, to program yourself because you, you know you're going to be there every week. And he said, and I, I, I want to help you with my experience and that it would be, you know, it would be a good learning experience for me and good for my reputation in the business to be able to have a town that basically I was running in the Florida territory. And Eddie you know, wanted to basically ensure that he had a lot of confidence in me, which was, which was good for, for my self-confidence and with his help every week. And, and then it got to the point where, you know, it, the town was really, really doing well. And Eddie said, you know, he said, I, n- not that Eddie 
uh, he certainly didn't need to work and and didn't want to be on the road all the time. But he finally said, you know, I'd like to come up there and work a three or four week program with you, which, you know, I would never have felt right asking him if he would consider doing that. And when he basically threw the idea out there and volunteered to do it, I mean, I was, I was ecstatic. And so he came to the town and, um, for four weeks, you know, we, we, we worked a program and just did incredible business, but that was, uh, that was the peak of me being under the Eddie Graham learning tree. And, and I got to see firsthand that everything that, that was said about him and his, and his reputation in the business, it was all true. And then I don't think the, 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 the things that were said about him did justice to really how brilliant he truly was. He, he was of all the people in all of my years, you know, over a half century being around the business, he was the one guy who had the greatest influence on me. And I've, I'm just blessed that, that uh, I was in Florida at a time where Eddie was still active and uh, had a chance to uh, be under the Eddie Graham learning tree. Jason E. of via email. JJ, who do you think embodies being a four horseman the most, both in and out of the ring? I assume you're talking about the current roster of people? No, no. He's saying the embodies being a four horseman. I don't know if he means who i guess of, what I of can, all the horsemen back yeah, in that, the day yeah who's kind of i wow. guess that's what i'm kind of reading it as who embodies being that four horsemen the most you know there'd be a lot of a lot of choices that that i i could make and uh it wouldn't be fair to 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 list them all and say well it's a tie with all of them but certainly flair has to be w- way up on that that list um Barry Wyndham would certainly have to be way up on that list, but the but the one guy who who I feel when he especially when he came up from uh, Pensacola and came into Charlotte, you know, and his reputation preceded him, but he was not he was not an, at that point a household name, and his and his reputation had not fully developed, but to me. Uh, I saw Arn Anderson at, at, at the stage where his talent was raw coming in and that he rose to the occasion and had such uh, a, an, an influence and an impact on the territory and on the, on the, the legacy of the, of the four horsemen. So as I look at all, and that's uh, with all due respect to, to, to Flair and to, to Ole and to, but to me, Arn, uh, and, and, and now where he didn't get, I think the proper kudos do him for what a great mind and a great in-ring general, uh, that's, that's all come to fruition too, that he, he now enjoys that reputation of being, uh, a great ring general and a great performer. And, um, he, he's, to, to me, he's right up there at the top of the list. And he's, he's a, a good friend, and it's not only because of our friendship, but he's someone that uh, I just have so much respect for. And, you know, there's other guys that were, you know, had a little more experience that were, you know, and he's not a, he doesn't have the, uh, the bodybuilding 
physique of a Lex Luger, or uh, he, he, but he just. If you were looking at somebody that you were going to clone to be uh, the epitome of a professional wrestler, and and you wanted to to uh, to bring their their ring ability, uh, you know, their stamina, uh, their ability to interview, um, go an hour if you needed an hour, or go out there and give you a hell of a match for eight minutes if that, if that's what it was called for, because you're on television limited at time. That to me, of, of all the people that I've been around, um, my kudos would go to, to Arn Anderson. I was thinking the same exact thing. Now, Todd Stutz via email wrote, JJ, can you talk about the relationship the Four Horsemen had with their fans in Greensboro back in the day? I was a part of a small contingent of hardcore smart fans that were in Greensboro on a regular basis, and I've heard bits and pieces about how much all of you guys thought about those fans in Greensboro, North Carolina. Yeah, we did, and and actually, the uh, I think the television show on T on on TBS out of Atlanta, where basically Arn uh, coined the the phrase of the four horsemen and held up the symbol of excellence, which was the, the you know the four fingers with the thumb uh, in the palm, and the day that he he did that, and he did it almost as a just a, as a passing thought, uh, and, and I, I wish there was a, a copy of that interview because I, I, I've gone over to me in times of my mind, but he, he talked about when the horsemen were all standing there and he said, you know, no, no, at no time in our history have, have, especially in the world of professional wrestling, have four individuals had an impact on the on the overall industry and, and dominated and he said and I would expand that beyond the world of professional wrestling that that uh, and, and to try and find a comparison he said uh, it would be the four horsemen of the apocalypse and held up four fingers and that's where the four horsemen thing started and the use of the symbol of excellence and when he when he I think did it for the first time on Atlanta TV we would do we would do Atlanta TV in the uh, in the morning at the studio, and then jump on a plane or a charter to go to because Saturday night was a, a night for a major night for professional wrestling in live arenas. And on that particular night, we were in uh, in Greensboro, which was always a good town for us. Period. I mean, and. After Arn kind of established the, the the identity of Four Horsemen, and and we didn't really think that it would be something that that we we didn't we could not have ever imagined at that moment that 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 by mentioning the name and the symbol of excellence uh, as it came to be known was going to have that kind of an impact. But we went to Greensboro, and when we finally came out as a group into the ring, the one whole first row of ringside the whole section which would be probably 20 people wide we're all there with uh with shirts ties and when we got to the ring you know people were looking everywhere else and they were pointing that direction and as we turned and looked here that first entire row was holding up the four fingers with the symbol of excellence and it gives me goosebumps even now thinking about it that though that those fans and and then when others would see it 
it spread like wildfire that every town that we would go to it would be similar with fans holding up the symbol of excellence and and yelling for horsemen for horsemen and uh and we were heels but and 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 i i'm sure jimmy crockett must have worried a little bit at first that you know you want your fans angry and mad at your heels and want to see like the baby faces like the rock and roll express or the uh, the road warriors you know, to draw the battle lines, but fans, yes, they, they deep inside hated us, but they loved to hate us and respect our ability and what we were all about. So we could go out there and they still cheered the road warriors and the rock and roll express and, and uh, whoever, uh, you know, with the same energy as, as you could ever expect. And yet, they would boo us, but still hold up the four fingers uh, as a symbol of excellence. Uh, and it was much a show of respect uh, rather than, than admiration, though. There, uh, some of that, I think, was, was mixed in there, too. Uh, the bottom line is uh, they loved to hate us and, and bought tickets to come see us. Love it. And if you think about it, oof, what a memorable, memorable uh you know, obviously the four horsemen, but memorable fans down there in Greensboro, that is for sure. I mean, there's still a big contingent down there that absolutely love the old NWA, love Crockett, and absolutely love the four horsemen. Yeah, they were great, great fans, very loyal fans, and, you know, one of the really true great towns uh, that we would look forward to going to. Great, great, great fans. This is from Subway Wrestling via Twitter. Do you have a favorite party story about going out with the nature boy rick flair <laughs> <laughs> well with the nature every night was an adventure and uh, chicago was the one town in, in particular and there was a gentleman rick always liked to uh to hire a limo and there was, uh, and I can't remember his name, and I wish I could because he was a, an older uh, gentleman. Uh, he was African American, and he, he was—I don't know if he actually owned the car or he was the driver of that particular car. And it was like he was our choice every week. That that it was always him that that uh, you know would pick us up and then stay with us. And <laughs> the, it's like the conversation every week would be, Mr. Flair. You know, and, uh, I can't stay up too too late tonight. You know, I've had a busy weekend. You know, and uh, please, please don't 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 stay out all night. Rick would say, No, 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 no. Don't worry about it. You know, we're going to make it an early night tonight. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Rick didn't know the true definition of early night, mm. and uh, you know, sometimes we would be, uh, you know, on Rush Street in uh, Chicago, and there was a, a the the bars changed names of the, uh, of the over a period of time as ownerships change over a period of time. But there, there was one uh, place there. I think it was it was called the Snuggery, and that was our watering hole. And and of course, you know, Flair or, or one of us would mention and ah, Chicago, and we're gonna we're gonna come out there, and we're you know we're gonna destroy the arena, and when we're done. We're not going to rest. We're going down to uh, Rust Street, and we'll see everybody at the Snuggery. Well, by the time we got down there in the limo, uh, it would be wall-to-wall people. And, you know, they the, it was like two floors, 
And so they had a pretty good capacity, but they would have the the fire marshal <laughs> capacity met, and there would be a line of people down the street and around the corner. That if a couple people left, then they would allow two people in to take their place. And it just, I, I, I really can't think of another town that was uh, or another uh, look in the watering hole that we got, went to that was uh, as hot as Snuggeries. It was just. You know, and you'd walk in, and they are—they knew what each of us, uh, what our our, our uh, uh, drink of the night of choice was. And you walk in, and you go to 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 tell the bartender what you want, and he'd put the drink down in front of you, and you know, you'd smile. Okay, they know what we want, and then we would be there the whole night. And at the end of the night, uh, you know, I'm. We didn't take anything for granted. We say, "Well, okay, uh, where's our tab?" <laughs> the answer was always the same: "You don't have a tab." Either somebody or some group picked it up that it, it was a good night for uh, for the watering hole. Certainly a good night for us, and the fans that were there were able to get in. Just enjoyed being able to rub elbows with us, and you know they were always respectful, and just uh, God, great memories. Rick, as big of a party animal as everyone thinks he is, and how he proclaims, or is a little bit of that, maybe like a little bit of a work? Uh, <laughs> I would go so far as to say, whatever rumors that uh, that that you've heard, or stories that you've heard, or or you may have witnessed, if you were in a town where where you know we were there. Um, they weren't exaggerated. If anything, they were t- toned down in, in what the, some of the stories were. It just, I used to say, I don't know when Rick sleeps. You know, <laughs> he, he, uh, he just, he, in, in, and here's a guy who, who it wasn't like the nightlife became his life to, to the uh, expense of his in-ring performance. His in-ring performance never wavered, no matter how long he was, uh, uh, was active, how long he was a champion, uh, which I think is why he will go down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest champion of all time, because he would go out there every night and, and he, he, he knew that the fans came with expectations. And even if we went to a small, smaller town or went to a town that normally would do real well. And for some reason, maybe the television got preempted that week and didn't air. And so the crowd may have been two thirds of what we thought it would, would be. That didn't affect Rick's performance. He, he came out every night and just as if the place was full to the rafters and, and they were standing room only and people turned away, which is why Rick will go down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest champion of all time, because that was his work ethic. And, and even if he was hurt, if he was tired, it didn't matter. He, it's like, uh, he would get to the uh, to the arena. He would he, he, you you could when the horses were there, uh, uh, you could feel the energy. The energy was there, and when you walk through that curtain, uh, it's something that it's it's either there or it's not. And it was always there for us. And I I I think that a part of it was that we realized that the fans 
anointed us. They, 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 they made the horsemen. And in so doing, they also, no matter what town you went to, uh, what the circumstances were, they had a, a, an expectation of, of what, what they were going to get when you came through that curtain. And we were aware of that. No matter what town we were in, if the crowd was a little bit down because the TV was preempted, we went out there for the people that were there, and more nights than not, it was uh, standing room only. Uh, we went out there and and performed at, at at our max, at the highest level. Didn't matter if we were tired, if we had a double shot that day, because back then we were we were going seven days a week with. Uh, with two days on a on a Saturday and a lot of times two days on a Sunday that we we were we were appearing in an arena nine times in seven days and there would be weeks go by that we didn't have a day off and you know the the family sometimes you know would but you know but the financial rewards were were very good too but you know after a while you know they gotta be nice if we could have you at home for one, for one night but as a performer, if you ever get to a, a, a situation like that where, and this is what the horsemen experienced, where we were so hot that you, you yes, you're pushing, it to, you're pushing yourself to the limit, uh, but at the same time, you, you hope that, that, because some people go their whole career and dream of being in a situation like that, and, and, have a successful career, but but never never get to experience what we experienced, and we never lost uh, the fact that that that's a situation that we were in, and so we pushed ourselves to go out there and you know push it to the limit every night because we knew that those fans spent their hard-earned money come to see us with, with the highest expectations and. We weren't going to let him down, which is, I think, why we were so successful. Next question from Christopher Sapp via Twitter. Who was Lisa Wolf, and why was she working for the WWF in the mid-90s? Lisa Wolf. Ah, she, I'm trying to think back. She had two brothers that were active in the National Football League in uh, management positions and how how she came to to be involved with wrestling I don't know but there was a period of time there where uh, you know she was on the road with us and um, she was you know it was I'm sure people had their their rumors as to what they thought was going on but she was uh, she was a great businesswoman and um, a good person to be around and I think kept us on the straight and narrow and uh, and I really enjoyed the time that, that we had with Lisa and she was uh, she was good people what was her role I know she did, obviously Vince got her from the, the National Football League what was her role in the WWF you know I don't you know, we back then you know nobody was big on titles and <laughs> and and job descriptions but she went on the road with us and and she enjoyed being around us uh, you know i i you know it it's a crazy world and i'm sure being around the the national football league and football players uh, you know there are people that uh, 
have a lot of great memories. And she found that uh, the world of professional wrestling and being around the four horsemen was everything that you could have heard about the, the NFL and, and the, their legion of fans and what they did. And, and we, we didn't take a, a backseat to anybody. Now, when she was working WWF in the mid-90s, what was like her, not position or title or something like that, but what was her like place in the pecking order? Obviously, not as high as Vince, but she was uh, above you, below you? Did she report to you or you reported to her? I, technically, I think I reported to her. And she was, Vince had kind of, you know, because Vince can't be everywhere every night in every town. And she was going to towns and uh, was a good businesswoman. And I don't remember what her exact title was. Um, and and for the period of time that she was there, and I don't even remember what that total time frame was, but she was a great businesswoman. And uh, she was uh, no nonsense and, and was good for us for the time that she was there and, and, um, and good as a person. This is from Chad B. via Twitter. JJ, do you watch current wrestling at all? Have you seen AEW? If so, what do you think of it? Well, to be honest with you, I I don't watch much of the current product. If I if uh, you know, back in the day, it's like six oh five. They talked about everybody would, which was understandable. Would uh, you know have their whole Saturday with all the places they had to go and errands they had to run but they always managed to be home in front of their television set when 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 championship wrestling came on at 605 and it uh you know people it, it, it that's how the day was structured they may have may week to week may be different but at 605 they were home in front of their television set and uh Fan, wrestling fans are incredibly loyal and uh, that period of time the ratings were just unbelievable uh, you know the horsemen were at, I would say at their peak we also had people across the ring from us be it Dusty Rhodes the Road Warriors uh, um Sting, who you know, we had people across the ring from us that were worthy of uh, the Rock and Roll Express, because we were hot, but people don't come just to see you have your ring entrance and stand there in the corner. They want to see a contest and they want to see people that are worthy of uh, of giving you a battle every night. And the the depth of the talent roster at that time was, I think, as good as it's ever been. Have you seen AEW, the Cody Rhodes uh, new promotion that they have? I have, I have uh, come across it a few times and watched some of it, and uh, it, it's it kind of reminds me of back the old days with uh, you know what we were doing in the in the studio wrestling, and it seems to be structured similarly. But uh, I. <laughs> I was close to Dusty, you know what I mean? We, we, mm-hmm. we never, never interacted anywhere around the arena where, because we were, he was the, the, uh, the catalyst of uh, all the people that were, we were fighting and I was kind of the leader and, on our side. And so Dusty and I, as close as we were, 
really never uh, never associated except we would make exceptions around the holidays and Dusty would have a a party at his house and I would be invited and and um, but, but we it was an era where the, you know you hear the term protect the business which we tried to do and we never uh, back in those days if if you like in Amarillo not that many restaurants in Amarillo but if you if you walked into a restaurant and looked up and saw one of the top baby faces at a table there was a time where you could maybe go over to the to the far end in the same restaurant the same time we were there and have no communication with them but there were fans that that had a trouble accepting that because the battles between the two sides were so intense that they had a hard time, uh, you know, accepting that the two of us could be in this, even in the same restaurant without all of a sudden it, it, <laughs> tables flying and, and it ended up, uh, uh, a fight. So rather than be in a situation like that, where the fans would have pause, if they were there or somebody was there and I walked in and saw them, I would turn around and go somewhere else. And hmm. it's, it's amazing how fans notice the little things like that too. As far as Cody, I don't know how well you know him or don't know him. Any, like anytime you met him or anything like that. And did he remind you of dusty at all, as far as kind of his plans and thoughts of what he's doing with the business? Because obviously he's kind of playing the same role, so to speak, uh, as Dusty, he's kind of the, the big baby face for AEW. He is a, a, one of the bookers behind the scenes, so it's very reminiscent of Dusty. Well, I watched him grow up from a young pup because I would, I would, uh, uh, you know, I would socialize some with Dusty, not not to the point that people would see me coming going at his home, but and so over a period of time, I I got to see. Uh, uh, all of the fans, he had a daughter too, that was a cheerleader for, I think one of the NFL teams. And they, they just, uh, so I watched Cody grow up from being a young pup. And so it doesn't surprise me that, uh, that, you know, that Dusty's DNA is going through the veins of Cody. And I would be surprised if he wasn't everything that they're now are saying that he is because dusty was a great performer but he was also an incredible mind for the business and that just tells me that during those formative years that that you know cody saw that and and was absorbing some of that and remembered enough of it that that now that's coming into play with what he's doing you know carving his own niche and making a name for himself i am not surprised at all so one of those things where you're pretty proud, since you're obviously very close with Dusty, or very close to Dusty, very close to Sammy. Some of you are very proud. You're hoping that he succeeds with AEW and, and his actual competition events. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I, I loved Dusty, I, and you know, in, in our business, uh, for one man to say that he loved another man, it, it, you know, people, oh, yeah, I love Dusty, and Dusty loved me, and when we would. We were the few rare times where we could we could uh, be together somewhere and interact. Uh, it would be a big hug, and and 
I, you know, who would say it first, but I'd whisper in his ear, I love you, Dream. And he, and he would say he loved me or he would, he would get it out first. And it was a genuine uh, show of respect and something that goes m- much deeper. Just um, kind of like the brother that you never had, that kind of mm. thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, let's see here from Carl via email. You mentioned having over 3,000 matches in your career. Who was your favorite opponent? Do you even have a favorite opponent? Or maybe do you have some favorite opponents and favorite matches? Wow. Of 3,200, I, 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 in, in the time that I, my, uh, over a 20 year period, uh, you know, got to wrestle in Madison Square Garden. It was a big deal for me. Uh, spent a year in Australia, uh, like 15 tours of Japan. Uh, I think I wrestled actually because I used to keep records for taxes, and I would I would be able to note at the end of the year where my travels would take me. And I think I wrestled in 44 of the of the uh, of the states. Uh, I wrestled in Germany, so I got to see a lot of the. Uh, the who's who. I mean, I went to Germany and Otto Vance was their world champion over there and I got a chance to wrestle him and it was a different style over there. Um, they, they, um, punching was very commonplace here in the States, uh, even in Japan, but, uh, it was a no, no in, uh, uh, in Germany. I mean, they, you know, you were told, I know that that's what you do when you're, but here, you know, if you can't have a match without punching, then, you know, we would have to turn around and, and conclude our relationship and have you go back home. <laughs> but it, it's if you if you know that those are the ground rules, it's surprising about what great matches you can have without without throwing ever throwing a punch. Hmm. That's great. And now, as far as, let's see here, Randy H. by email, this is a good one. As head of talent relations in the WWF, who was your favorite talent to work with and who was your least favorite talent? <laughs> uh, I, I, for those that know me personally, outside of, uh, you know, the, the ring, um, uh, will know me as someone who has a personality that that I think I could virtually get along with anybody. And for that reason, I had great success uh, on the creative and executive side of the business because I had that ability to be able to get along with uh, you know with with all with all people. and and I for me, it I, I can't, you know, to start picking out names of somebody that maybe was difficult to deal with. I, uh, I, I can't single them out because I figured a way how to make it work. And, you know, there were always guys that uh, were, were, were easy, easy to work with. I remember one time that we used to have to do when I was in WCW where uh, or it might have, might have been uh, when I was working for Vince that we had a lot of, uh, uh, I think it was working for Vince, where we had a lot of uh, personal appearances with with different sponsorships. And even though guys got paid to do them, 
there was a lot of guys who, um, you know, had a had a, a a pretty extensive schedule in terms of as an in-ring talent, and even though that uh, that they can make good money doing personal appearances, um, preferred to not beat themselves to death and have time home with their family, and I certainly respect that and i remember that um and i you know and i'm not picking on lex luger but it seemed like every time that i called lex it was like i'd hear almost a groan through the phone and oh i'm you know i had my five-year-old has a birthday party this week you know it was always something that was not convenient for him the other end of the spectrum was randy savage I mean, I didn't even get the. I, I I would call Randy, and the Macho Man would say, "Well, what do you got? Where do you need me to go?" <laughs> Knowing that that I didn't send him just to to send him somewhere, they were all important, and they were different sponsors and different things that uh, to have Randy was was a big deal, and and Randy would go, and. With no, without a moment's hesitation, almost to the point that someone in that position of uh, of having to make calls to guys and ask them to give up a, a day off to go somewhere, you'd almost like be motivated to call a Randy Savage because Randy always said, "Where do you need me to go?" and you know, and you get me a, a, a nice hotel and whatever, and it, and the car to pick him up and. And I sound like I'm picking on Lex, but, you know, some guys that would like, oh, man, oh, oh, again, you know. But in fairness to Randy, though, to call somebody else who who didn't have the same enthusiasm that Randy did, it would have been unfair of me to to say, okay, I'm I'm just going to call Randy because Randy – just wants the information and he's going to go and, and, and I don't have to hear any, I don't have to hear any attitude where there's another guy who I'm going to have to listen some, to some attitude and then, and then not back down, you know, tell him, well, you know, your name came up and, and you're, you're, uh, you know, you're on the, you know, like they had the games that, that were very popular then and you're one of the feature guys and you're on the cover of the box of the game and this is to promote that. And I need, you know, I need for you to go. And uh, I had to be stern and hold hold my ground too. I love that, Macho Man. You think you know such a big star, you know, this you know, absolute legend. You figure he might be like, yeah, I don't know about that. You figure he wouldn't be as easy to work with as he really was. Kind of he was he he was a huge star, probably one of the biggest stars ever in our profession. And I had a great relationship with Randy. And I didn't, I, 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 I in good conscience can say I never abused it, but, but Randy was also in demand. He was making good money. He was on all of the, uh, the games. He was on the cover box. Uh, you know, if, uh, they, they released a, a DVD back then, you know, like if they had, you know, the different things, whether it was WrestleMania or what, you know, the, it was a big the VHS deal. Tape and stuff. The VHS yeah. tape was a big was a big a big market back then, and 
So the guys who were being featured uh, to to actually promote it uh, during the the release time, it put some pressure on on the guys. But they were also the guys that were being rewarded financially for it too. Now this is from Mike T via email. Jim Ross has often said you helped him greatly for what would be his role as head of talent relations in the WBF. Can you kind of elaborate on maybe you giving Jim some pointers or helping him out and maybe just giving him some advice? Jim was a student of the business as far back as I can ever remember. He worked for Bill Watts, and back in those days, Bill's territory was pretty widespread. And, um, Jim has, uh, uh, a unique talent in that he is very good at uh, broadcasting and calling matches. And so he's somebody that was, that was always in demand. And, um, I have so much respect for Jim Ross. He's a great announcer and nobody could ever question his his passion for the for the business and just uh he was always professional uh, i think that is if i had to pick one word to describe uh or two words to describe jim ross a consummate professional and that's what he was and i always had a great relationship with him great respect for him and um just somebody that uh, uh will be a friend for life is that something you had to help him kind of prepare for that role? Or is that one of those things where you can just give him advice and you kind of got to learn it yourself? Or how, did, you know, how does that head of talent relations work as far as the next guy stepping in? Well, I, like I said, uh, Jim was a student of the business. He, he, um, he was around Bill Watts. So he learned a lot from Bill before um, I ever worked with him for uh, a a sustained period of time. So he had already developed uh, good habits and understanding of what you had to do to be a success in this business. And especially uh, somebody who was a, a commentator broadcaster, uh, there's, uh, you know, added pressures on, on them with what the expectations were. So, uh, and, and Jim would be there because I would go to towns and, and he would, he would, he would see, you know, my, uh, my interaction with the, with the guys. And, and I never ever thought, I mean, I'm just hearing this from you and I never thought, well, God, I didn't, I never thought that Jim Ross is, <laughs> is one of the absolute best at what he does. And I'm almost, I'm, I'm, I'm humiliated and humbled and, and surprised that, that, uh, that, that maybe, uh, you know, I had, uh, a role in, um, you know, formulating him being in that role as uh, his career developed. Yeah. Uh, and I believe he said it a few times and I know this was probably a couple of years back. There was a live state show. You were kind of brought out as a special guest and he, uh, yeah, I really give you a lot of uh, kudos saying you have a huge help to him in the business for sure. I remember that and it was the introduction that he gave me and I and I'm someone who I I I I've never taken my success for granted. Uh I always 
have said that I was never the biggest, never the best, but nobody loved this business more than I did or was willing to work any harder than I worked. So whatever I, whatever success I've had is because I worked at it. And, and the, but there are a lot of people who work at it and feel that, uh, that they've earned something that, that just, and that's the crazy part of the business that just never happens for them. And fortunately for me, it, it has happened. And, uh, I would say, uh, you know, part of my success was uh, being around people like Jim Ross. And I guess that would be a great kind of uh, stopping point. And obviously, you can continue sending in your questions, comments, concerns, Podcast at gmail.com. You can send it in via Twitter as well as at Two Man Power Trip. Even use the hashtag AJJA, which means ask JJ anything. One more time, the email is Podcast at gmail.com. As far as pro wrestling tees, JJ has a pro wrestling tee store up where you can pick up your very own JJ Dillon t shirt. That is prowrestlingtees.com slash JJ Dillon. Please, I implore you to check out our website, tmptempire.com. Com, and on there, you'll find a link to a JJ and JJ's website, which is JJDillon.com. You can buy a JJ's book, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls from McMahon to McMahon, the highly touted JJ's book, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls from McMahon to McMahon. And obviously, like I mentioned, you can follow us on Twitter and really check out the website. Once again, that is TMPTEmpire.com. JJ, what do you think about these fan questions? Do you you love getting these questions from the fans, these random, you know, kind of one-offs? I really do. I mean, and I, you know, sometimes it could be a theme thing or something coming up like one of the major uh, pay-per-views or, or uh, events that, I, you know, will usually trigger some memories of uh, mm-hmm. previous uh, special events like that. But uh, I, I have to say that I, I, this is what I most enjoy, that if somebody who, uh, who, who, is pretty loyal and, and listens, uh, you know, week after week and then has something that's on their mind or, uh, whatever that they take the time to sit down and whether it's a letter or an email or whatever it is and send it to you. Um, that means a lot to me that you, you care enough to want to, uh, put your question out there. And, and I think that it's, it's probably, a. uh, for the one person that, that actually takes the time to ask that question, probably there might be 10, 20 people uh, who had a similar thought in mind with what that one person is asking. So uh, it really it really helps me because one thing that I want to, and I've, I've said this to you, John, that I, 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 I don't do this show for me. And for those that don't know, you and I... Uh, uh, I think a couple of years ago when we got started, I, th- I think that maybe for a week or so you would send me some bullet points or some topic ideas. And we kind of moved away from that because we seem to be having greater success with, with whatever's going on at that moment and, and using that as the springboard for the topic. And I'm really appreciative of the fans first for their loyalty of, of tuning in each week to, to support uh, the podcast and, and support our ratings, but to take the time, if you have a question, uh, and, and people write from all over the, all over. 
and it may be someplace uh, you know that I've appeared at some point and that triggers a question so I would encourage anybody sitting out there that's listening and if you haven't uh, written and have something and and you've never heard me discuss it or answer it or you have and want me to elaborate on it you know to take take the time and uh, and and write and usually uh, John will mention your name and where you're from and uh, it, we're doing the show for you and so when you ask a question, it doesn't get any closer relationship than that. Absolutely. And, of course, you can join us each and every week at 6.05, a very yeah, key time to a lot of good old school fans, every Saturday night for JJ, the JJ Dillon Podcast. This podcast was a presentation of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire.